production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Lewis Chaitin, partner at Jones Day and a member of the City Club Board of Directors. It's my pleasure to introduce today's forum, a bipartisan conversation on restoring civility in public discourse. One of the bedrocks of American democracy is our commitment to free speech, the robust, open exchange of diverse ideas and perspectives. The founders of our country imagined that vigorous but civil public debate would ultimately make our country stronger and more resilient. More than 200 years later, it can be argued that the conditions for civil public discourse for a meaningful exchange of ideas have become more difficult than ever. Republicans and Democrats, both on the Hill and in neighborhoods around the country, find themselves unable to collaborate and find any common ground. The advent of technology and social media has only deepened those divisions, creating echo chambers in which each side speaks to its own supporters. As a likely consequence, a 2017 Pew Research Center poll found that trust in the national government reached an historic low of 18%. Can we bridge this divide and restore civility into our public discourse? Well, we've assembled an impressive panel of national voices to address these concerns. Guiding today's conversation is my law partner, Yvette McGee-Brown, partner in charge for diversity, inclusion, and advancement at Jones Day. A first-generation college graduate, Ms. McGee-Brown, was the first African-American woman elected to the Franklin County Common Pleas Court. When she left the Common Pleas bench, she founded a nationally recognized organization that redefines how hospitals, law enforcement, and social welfare groups respond to children and families caught in the cycle of abuse. In January 2011, she became the first African-American woman to serve as a justice on the Ohio Supreme Court. She has returned to private practice, assisting clients across a variety of industries and a range of difficult legal issues. Yvette, uh, I now turn the forum over to you to introduce our esteemed panel. Thank you, Louis. So it's my pleasure to be here with, um, immediately to my left, uh, Mickey Edwards, who's a former U.S. Congressman for Oklahoma. Dan Glickman, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and the Executive Director of the Congressional Program at the Aspen Institute, and Dr. Carolyn Lukensmeyer, who is Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona, but also has Ohio roots as she was the Chief of Staff to former Governor Dick Celeste. So it's always good to have her back in Ohio. So let's get started in the program because they have a lot to say. And I'm just going to throw out um, an initial comment I made to the panel backstage. As I said, you know, if the framers of the Constitution had a 24-hour news cycle, we never would have had a Constitution. Um, and, and so in the context of where we are now, I wanted to ask each of them to um, 
respond to this. One of my young political activists, when she heard I was doing this forum, was incensed with me. She said, I don't want civility. I want to fight. And I don't think we need to be civil. We need to march in the streets and we want to fight. So let me ask each of you to respond to that sentiment that is so prevalent right now in our country. Mickey? Well, thanks. You're First welcome. of all, I, got to, <laughs> I, I, I owe all of you an apology. Uh, I will tell you in advance. Uh, I watch the tribe every night from my home in D.C. I'm, I'm from Cleveland. I was born here, and my parents were born here, and I'm glad to be home. But after watching us lose two straight to the A's, I decided to go to the game last night so that I could pull us through, and I, <laughs> I failed totally. And so, uh, so I apologize. Uh, you know, we needed one more hit from Jose. But, um, you know, part of the, the problem is, you know, Dan's a Democrat, I'm a Republican, uh, and we both have very strong views. Uh, I don't think that you, you know, just surrender your principles. There are things that, that matter. But in order to achieve anything as Americans, where there's 320 million of us, and we have different views, you have got to be able to sit down with somebody who has a different perspective than you do to try to understand them, to make sure that they understand where you're coming from so that at the end of the process you can have an outcome so that you can support the military, you can provide health care, you can do all the things that you have to do uh, as a country together. And so I understand the impulse to say, I feel very, very strongly about this and I want to be heard and I'm not going to give up. But at the end of the day, if you do that, nothing happens. And, you, and you're not able to move forward collectively on any of the problems that we all share. And so uh, civility is a tool. Think of it not as surrendering your principles, but as a tool to help you achieve them. And, and that's why the National Institute for Civil Discourse is so important, that, that we work to try to find a way not to put aside differences, but to, a way to resolve differences. Well, thank you. Well, I wasn't born in uh, Cleveland. I'm from Wichita, Kansas, but I do sing a lot, and I came here again to see if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame might have a place for me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so far, I've been unsuccessful. Um, Mickey and I are of different parties, but Oklahoma, Kansas. So uh, two kind of heartland guys that uh, trying to do their best. I'm reminded of the Mark Twain. I'm talking to this young woman you talked to. Mark Twain once said, when I was 12 years old, I couldn't believe how foolish my father was. But when I turned 21, I couldn't believe how much he had changed in those nine years. And part of this is maturity a little bit, you know. But maturity requires knowledge and knowledge about how our country works. Um, uh, being well-educated, and, um, you know, uh, these are very difficult problems. I think it was uh, John Maynard Keynes said, for every complicated problem, there is a simple and a wrong solution, and people are always looking for that simple solution, and today's world pushes you into that because being on the one hand and then on the other hand doesn't satisfy a lot of those primal, you know, interests and, and instincts we have. Uh, just to add to what Mickey said, which I agree totally, uh, very famous Kansas Senator Bob Dole, who I'm still friendly with, uh, different parties, but I respect him very much. When I first came to Congress, I would talk a lot. I used to just talk a lot and about anything because I thought I knew everything. And he says, Glickman, just remember, you have two ears and one mouth for a simple reason. Remember that. <laughs> And it, it was, it's a lesson in life, is, is that listening is an art that 
it, it really is lost in a society that where we hear 24-hour news, where we, where we uh, get attention when we do something outrageous. And listening is a, is a subject that needs to be taught in the schools and the faith-based world, and it ought to be rewarded. And um, right now, we could use a lot of more of that kind of advice as a society. So I don't blame it all on Washington. I think, as Pogo said, we have met the enemy and he is us. And we need to figure out how to deal with things at home and communities and get people to res respond with better behavior and character. Yvette, I'm going to try to really respond very directly to what your young associate challenged you with. And if I can, to give just a bit of a context historically about the Institute for a minute. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we were created at the University of Arizona after the tragic mass shooting in 2010, excuse me, January 2011, in which Gabby Gifford was severely wounded, six people died and 12 other people were also wounded. The university, the community, and the state literally came together. I don't know how many of you are associated with universities, but they made the decision in 10 days after the memorial service to create this institute. I assumed the leadership July 1, 2012. In that time frame, mostly when people interacted, no matter what the audience was, it was a real challenge. What's the definition of civility? Aren't you just trying to tell us to be politically correct? Then, as time went by, and it really took a high point or a low point, a better way to say it, in the 2016 presidential campaign, where virtually we got thousands of messages, email, social media, phoning, of Americans, red states, blue states, purple states, totally upset with how degraded the language in that campaign was. That people running for the highest office in the land began to role model began to make it legitimate to degrade other people, to otherize other people, bigotry, misogyny, freedom of religion, accusing all Muslims of fostering terrorism. So the interest in our work like really took off in a way where people came together and said, we have to change this. We have got to get back to civility as a core value, as you said, in democratic practice. Then the border issue happened with the children. And it was less than 24 hours before civility itself now became an issue of divisiveness. Mm -hmm. Those people who know we still need civility, those people who are morally outraged by one step line crossed too far, who now feel like it has to be about protest, it has to be about outrage. I think what we all have to take a deep breath and think again just for a minute of our own history. In every situation where our country has faced a huge social or political issue, there have always been two streams operating simultaneously. It seems like a paradox. Paradox is just two things that are both going on at the same time but can't both be true. That's where we are now. We both need the stream of American protest that fits people's values, where they stand on issues, but we need the stream of respect and civility that leads to compromise that Mickey and Dan both spoke about that actually allows our country to move back to, or move forward to the next step. So what we are finding people able to respond to at this moment in time, it is essential 
that every American, whatever your politics are, or if you've totally disengaged from politics, which that's the effect this has had on many people, need to find the courage of our convictions to take the action that fits our way of expressing our values and voice, but not to fight over another division. Should we protest or should we be civil? There's room for both. So when, when, what I hear from people is this passion that they feel. Is there a way for them to be passionately opposed and yet do it in a way that reflects respect for the other person, maybe not agreeing with the view, but being able to listen. And if you think about, in our lifetimes, the most iconic figures, not just in the United States, but worldwide, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, the powers that be looked at both of them as initiating terrorism. They were literally called terrorists. But if you look at their personal track records, they managed to stand up for what they believed had to happen here at home and in South Africa in a way that kept civility and respect the center of their own personal behavior without exception. So uh, the answer is yes, but it does require leadership, leadership in government, corporate leadership, nonprofit leadership. I mean, uh, I, this is not meant to be an overly partisan statement because a lot of this stuff happened before Trump, okay? Mm -hmm. But the era that we're in now is, is, is appalling in terms of the kind of rhetoric that's flowing out there. And so it, setting an example is always what a good leader does in, in any organization. You're in a big law firm. Mm -hmm. If you don't have collaborative leadership, you're dead. You're going to lose your clients. Mm -hmm. And as a country, if we don't have that kind of collaborative leadership, people will lose trust in the system and it cannot work. And it's amplified by the fact, Mickey's written books about this. Our system was based on a system of separation of powers. So we essentially have a one foot on the brake and one foot on the accelerator at all times in America. That's the way the founding fathers wanted it. They wanted to make it damn slow to accomplish anything. So the only way things happen is if people will collaborate, if the grease of collaboration is there. And it happens more at the local and community level, where there are a lot of great examples all over the country, including Cleveland, than it happens at the national level. But recognizing we're in a system that is in, in, encourages gridlock by its very nature <coughs> means that people of goodwill and good faith have to show leadership and character to, to call out bad behavior when it happens. Yeah, let, let me add also that insult and tweet and all that stuff makes you feel good. It, it, you, know, you, you feel like I've got it off my chest. Uh, but the way you make change is through organization. It's by voting, it's by, you know, the civil rights movement was about going out and getting people together. For example, in a bus boycott, you know, how many people came together to, to provide the rides so people could get to their jobs, to provide the food. It's organization that changes things. It's not just sounding off so you can go home and say, did you hear what I said? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's about the hard work, which is much more silent. Uh, and, and tweets and, and all that, you know, great. You can tell everybody, you can share my tweet, please. Look, I've got millions of people sharing my tweets. Doesn't do anything but make you feel good. 
uh, and, and drive more division. Unite, organize, work, that's how you get change made. So how do you engage people back into the political system, right? Because if you've got examples in Congress where when you two were in Congress, there's a lot more of people talking to each other, people working across the aisles, and you don't see that anymore. I mean, people get elected and they follow their leader. Are there things that our representatives could be doing to model for the country what collaborative across party lines looks like. Yeah, stop following your leader, for one. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, just, just start with what does your own conscience tell you is the right thing mm -hmm. to do. The, the whole idea that you are part of a club and you are supposed to stick to your club and you're supposed to follow what the leader of your club tells you to do is, is anti-democratic, it's anti-our system, uh, and, and so you know, this is a call for all of us individually to step up, to live up to our own values, our own conscience, you know, and, and what that tells us that, that we should do. And we did a lot more of that when, when Dan and I were in Congress together. You know, as, as he's already pointed out, Dan's a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I was in the Republican leadership, Dan was uh, in a Democratic administration as a cabinet secretary, uh, but we worked together because we didn't feel the pull of division, that we had to be loyal to the most noisy and obnoxious no, uh, you know, voices that, that were out there. Okay, so first let me say, not everything that's happening is terrible and the end of the world, okay. There are some good people doing good things out there. You know, for example, I happen, I'm, I'm a friend of both of your United States senators here in Ohio. They're both great, decent, thoughtful, good public servants, mm -hmm. okay. Your governor, is who we served with, is a good, decent public servant. I mean, you may disagree with any of these people on all these issues, but they're working hard to get things done. And in Congress, there are a lot of people working together. We passed a bill last year called the 21st Century Cures Act. Biggest increase in the NIH budget, cancer research, and the history of America. Bipartisan effort uh, that, you know, get, get things done done. So it can happen, and it is happening at smaller levels. In the big stuff, and the media, and the rhetoric, you don't get any feel for that. But I don't want you to think that the system is just totally falling apart. It's not. It's, it doesn't feel good, but there are still people working, you know, we're certainly working to get things done. And I, I think that's an, an important part of the message. And at the National Institute for Civil Discourse, we have two primary initiatives. One that is directly with elected officials, which I'll talk about now, and maybe we can come back to one with the public in a few minutes. But we have a program called Next Generation. It's actually headed by our state director, Ted Celeste. Many of you know him. He was a member of the Ohio House for several terms until he was redistricted out of his seat. And our program has now worked in 14 states in the United States. We have done training, we call it Building Trust Through Civil Discourse, with almost 600 members of state legislatures. They're always balanced, Republican and Democrat, as appropriate to that state. And in all cases, once the training has taken place, and it's, all, it's very basic human relations around how do I stop seeing you as a moderate to liberal Democrat and you stop seeing me as a conservative Republican, mm -hmm. and oh, Dan and Carolyn could do this together with just impressive outcomes in literally all 14 states. What's wonderful is we are about to have the opportunity because of the leadership of two members of Congress from Central Ohio, 
Steve Stivers and Joyce Beatty, a Republican and a Democrat, they have created a civility caucus in the House of Representatives. And frankly, they should get credit for what I think was a genius decision that in order to join this caucus as a member, you actually have to come in as a pair, a Republican and a Democrat, <laughs> and you have to have an idea about an action that you would like to take. And based on their leadership, we are beginning to talk with that Civility Caucus. They're now up to, I believe it's 32 members. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to talk with that caucus about adapting the kind of experiential learning we've done with state legislatures literally all over in all regions of the country and bringing it into the House of Representatives. The freshmen who came in in the last election also have created a Civility Caucus, which has more members Steve and Joyce would claim they're still at the talking stage, if I can say that in Ohio, and they wanted to move to the action stage more quickly. But this will eventually, in not too long a time, get to a critical mass in the House of Representatives where there is the possibility of a pushback from the member level to leadership, which for the last few rounds has actually been using reward and punishment systems to keep the two party members apart. Mm -hmm. And if we are going to accomplish this, our members of Congress need to hear from us. This is a time when many, many, many millions of Americans have given up interacting with their members outside of the voting process. But I can tell you in terms of this dynamic between members and leadership right now, particularly in the House, hearing from you some praise when they do the right thing and a little ding when they don't is really critical specifically on this issue of how are they treating each other in their language and in their behavior and what kind of role modeling are they doing in their formal positions. Mm -hmm. Can I just comment just yes. quickly because I think you're entirely right. So the dark side is members of Congress, most of them want to really do a good job. They're stuck in a system where they're raising money all the time and it just, mm -hmm. and if they don't raise money then they're going to be hit with dark money and it's just, it's just a constant treadmill. And they got a gerrymandered system where most of them are in a district that is just one party so they have to appeal to the extremes of their base and there are a lot of you know other issues that, that make it really difficult on these people to be independent. You know, I, when I was in Congress, I used to find that they, on these rating services, like whoever would rate, the la labor unions, chamber of commerce, you name it, if I was in the 40 to, six, 40, to 40 yard line, mm -hmm. that's where I wanted to be. Today, if I'm from the 40 to 40 year yard line, I'm a dead man. <laughs> right. I, I gotta be at the 10 yard line or the 10 yard line in order to, to be successful. So that's the dark side. The bright side is, people can make a difference. So when Mickey and I were Congress, we used to have town hall meetings. Hundreds of people would come. Some of them people would praise us, some of the people would kill us. Uh, not figuratively, of course. Uh, and there was a lot more interaction with the public. And the public really has a responsibility to take this on and uh, recognize that it's just not a hopeless cause. You gotta, I wouldn't just ding a member who is being uncivil, I would hit them over the head with that bell and, and, and let people know if they're not behaving well, it's going to be noticed, it's going to be a factor in the next election. That is, it, it does make a difference uh, what the people at home are saying. Members really are attuned to that.
Yeah, and, and let me add also there is a movement going on now uh, supported by a sizable number of members of Congress who are telling the candidates for Speaker of the House, regardless of which party wins, that they're not going to vote for this person for Speaker unless they sign off on a series of reforms that are going to create a more bipartisan Congress, more ability for you know having votes become automatic if there's a certain number of co-sponsors and so forth, so that the party leaders can't just you know shut you out of the game. And so there are things that are happening to try to. Uh, decrease the partisanship in Congress. And, and, but but I, I have to say, the partisanship is not a group of people in Washington who just want to be nasty and in defiance of what the public wants. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a reflection of what's happening in the public. Uh, and, and we all have an obligation to set the standard to create the values, to let people know what kind of behavior uh, is acceptable to us. Because this is not just a group of people in Washington who are nasty and uncivil, uh, while the country at large is all very polite and civil and everybody's getting along right. beautifully. So, you know, we, we have to sort of, you know, make more clear what it is we expect of the people who represent us. You know what, that's an excellent point, because last night I watched the announcement of Judge Kavanaugh. And I watched him there with his wife and his two children, his two daughters. I don't know this man. I'm certain there are opinions he's written that I won't agree with. But what struck me as I watched not only his remarks, but his wife and two daughters standing behind him, is that what he is about to go through is going to be incredibly ugly. And in front of his children, he is going to be demonized and called everything that we could possibly think of. And I think there is some responsibility on the public to recognize that, you know, elections have consequences, but there's no doubt that this man is qualified in the terms that we would want a justice to be qualified. And that when we are speaking about him out in the public, we have to remember he has a family. It is hard to say, if you wanted to take him on for legal opinions, that's fine. But when you start, as we as the public, start demonizing this man in a way that his children will be impacted, that's wrong. So to your point, everybody in this room who's gonna have opinions about this justice candidate has a responsibility for how they speak about him. Um, and, and I don't know that we all own that personally in our day-to-day -day contact with others. The only, th the only thing I would say, and I don't disagree with you, and uh, yeah, I hope this debate doesn't become excessively personal, but this is a seminal decision, a seminal appointment, and has the potential of changing the course of the court mm -hmm. for generations. That's true. And so we're talking about important subjects there that deal with the equality, uh, certainly the issues of women's rights, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so people get charged up on these things, mm -hmm. and in some, Okay, in some you know uh, areas, people believe that this can have more impact on the future of America than just about any other legislative action that's happening. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason why people get charged up and should get charged up. It's mm -hmm. important. Let's hope it's done in a way that it's not destructive. I agree with you there. But if you've got strong opinions on any of these issues, whether it is uh, Citizens United or abortion or gay rights or gay marriage or environmental issues or, or you name it, 
It's only natural that because the court's balance will shift that people are getting people are nervous about this appointment. But where I think where we've lost our way though is we don't focus on the facts, we demonize the person. And yeah. what I'm suggesting no. is that each of us have a responsibility to criticize him on his legal rulings, but don't demonize the person because each of us in this big country carry different viewpoints and we look at the law differently based on our experiences or how we interpret it, but it doesn't make somebody um, a devil and somebody else a saint. That's all I'm suggesting. Sure. Carolyn. So we've been on the t this relationship between the public and our elected officials. Mm -hmm. And I agree with all three of you around we the public have a role at this moment in time that is very unique in our pol modern political history. I'm going to first give you a little bit of data coming from the American Psychological Association. Quickly, because we have to go into the audience questions. They have done a stress in America survey for 25 years. And when they did the last survey in 2017, for the first time ever, the fourth highest cause of stress in our country, identified by us, and, op and what that means is somehow my life is interrupted by this level of stress. I'm not sleeping as well. I'm having trouble focusing at work. 57% mm -hmm. of us said the current political climate was the cause of stress. Mm -hmm. Fourth That's highest right. has never shown up before. So there's no doubt we're at a moment in our country when this incivility and disrespect in our political and public discourse is having an impact on our lives that is really negative. So I'm going to take a minute. Mm -hmm. The other major project that we have launched is really working directly with the public in terms of we hear from the public broken family relationships. We hear from pastors and rabbis and imams, congregations that are no longer as open and communicative as they were. Biggest surprise to me, we've heard from major corporations that they have product innovation teams that now, today, have not come back to the same level of productivity that they were at pre the election. Mm -hmm. So a level of trust has been broken at a human level that we have to do something about. Ohio is one of our signature states. The initiative is called Revive Civility Ohio. Yvette is a co-chair along with Robert Cup. Lauren Linton, who please show yourself, is our <laughs> statewide organizer. We are bringing projects to Ohio that allow you, whether it's in your home, a rotary club, a library, a city council, where you can actually reestablish the essential skills, and you said this before, the capacity to listen, to understand, why did your life experience bring you to vote for this candidate? And my life experience brought me to vote for that candidate, or how we feel about the wall, or how we've, where we've come to is we're constantly trying to advocate with each other. I'm only listening to you long enough to find a hook to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. And we've even added a morality level to it. We are even communicating mm -hmm. to our fellow That's Americans right. that if you don't hold the same issue view on this issue as I do, you are somehow morally less of a person than I am. Mm -hmm. This is tragic. And frankly, this is said to make the point 
no matter what seesaw we're on in terms of who we elect to the top offices of the country, if we don't work on this in our living rooms and dining rooms and churches and schools, we don't have much hope. And I'm going to take a minute to say also, as we've been doing, you have to let Stephanie's me do Stephanie's going to kill me, but I know. go ahead. It's okay. It's okay, Stephanie. Well, as we've started this, every place in the country, we discover people who are just on their own initiative already doing it. You heard from the League of Women. Voters, our national partner, adding issues about civility. Megan Anderson has started something called Craft Beer and Conversation, mm -hmm. where she just gets people together across the ideological divide and helps them talk and listen to each other. Reverend Mark, who is doing Love Akron, who is just doing a phenomenal job in terms of bringing people. So my point is, it's hopeful. We know it's wrong, and we know we have to work on it, and all the students in the room that have been part of Text Talk Civility. Anyway, I know I have to stop. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's, there's time for questions, so let me move into the question part. So I'm going to do a little bit re-scripting. Re uh, I'm Yvette McGee-Brown. I'm the partner in charge for diversity, inclusion, and advancement at Jones Day. And today we are enjoying a forum on restoring civility in public discourse featuring Mickey Edwards, immediately to my left, former U.S. Congressman from Oklahoma, Dan Glickman, uh, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and the Executive Director of the Congressional Program at the Aspen Institute, and Carolyn Lukensmeyer, Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the city club and our staff will work hard to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are Youth Forum Council Chair Tiolu Orasana and Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have the first question, please. Good afternoon, and, and thank you so much for your, for your thoughts today. I'm the director of the Great Lakes Energy Institute at Case Western Reserve, and I'd like to ask you about the politicization of science that we have seen in public discourse. And I'd like your specific thoughts about the role of education in getting us to this point in uh, a loss of civility and dialogue. You know, we, we deal in very complex topics, topics that I, in, in many cases exceed the education level of everyday Americans. You know, you're looking at how molecules combine in water vapor to contribute to greenhouse gases. And, you know, we, we have PhDs at Case Western that are working on this issue. They're tough things to understand. And the average American primarily has a junior high school or senior high school level of science knowledge in their education. So I'd love to get your thoughts and, and perspective as to do we need reform in education to, to help have a more civil dialogue? Thank you. Well, let, let, let me start with this. The fundamental problem is not the science, it's, it's the education system. We, we have 
for a variety of reasons, turned a lot of our colleges and our high schools into primarily Votech institutions in the sense that we, that we use our schools to teach people to have jobs, to have skills, to be able to make a living. All of that is important, but you can only do so much in, in your schools. And we have washed out civics, we've washed out uh, critical thinking skills so that the ability of people to hear a fact uh, or told us a fact and to examine it and to see what the other options are and what, what the other arguments are is being washed out. And we, we are preparing people in our schools to be good job creators and, and job holders. We are not teaching them to be citizens. And, and that's part of the problem. So you get a complex issue, issue like any of these science issues. And what you want to do is you want to hear the various viewpoints and you want to examine them and you want to hear what other people are saying. Uh, and you don't do that anymore because we're not teaching young people to do that. Uh, one of the things that Dan and I have, have had to struggle with is the number of people who don't understand our government, don't understand how it works, don't understand how to affect it. So, you know, what you said about education, I think that's a very serious part of our problem, and education reform is one of the most important things we have to put at the very top of our priority list. So, so let me just say, I could have asked the same question because you're dead right. The level of public science research dollars is falling in real terms while the Chinese and the Brazilians and the rest of the world are spending more than we are. And, and I, I'm going to talk quickly about agriculture. So uh, I was at the World Food Summit many years ago when I was secretary and a group, of, it, was, it was after the Pope had spoken, President Clinton had spoken, and we went into the room with the American delegation and a group of protesters stripped naked threw uh, seeds at us, non-GMO seeds, and said uh, they were going to change the world. And I didn't have any more hair than I did before. It was hot as hell in the room. And so I thought I would start growing hair from the seeds that they threw at me. Uh, my, my, so so I, I, it is extraordinary, for example, the GMO debate, okay, genetically modified foods, okay, now... I'm in the agriculture world. I know that no questions are perfectly answered. I also know that we're not going to be able to feed the world to deal with drought, disease, hunger, and famine without using technology, which means science. Okay, some people think that, that it has to be done the way it was done 400 years ago. Okay, who's going to teach people about these things? In my judgment, scientists are some of the worst enemies in this particular problem because they don't know how to tell a story about what they do. And so uh, bad science can sometimes overcome good science. Uh, there, there, uh, you know, there are, however, some good things happening. In medicine, for example, we're finding that science is saving lives. Make your cancer much sooner than we thought it was going to do. So those stories need to get out. But scientists themselves need to do a better job of PR and explaining how important science is to the world. And that has been lost, and I see it in the agriculture world all the time. Carol? No question that we have to reintroduce civics into every level of education. And we have to do it not in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s way of doing it. We have to do it that matches the world that our young people now live in. It has to be engaging. It has to be interactive. It has to relate to their life experiences. And we've lost several generations without this basic civics education. And we have to be responsible to reintroduce it into every level of education.
Next question. Yes, uh, for um, Mickey and uh, Dan, um, the 2012-2013 immigration reform package was a bipartisan effort in the Senate. It um, both sides compromised. It still got shot down. Where did we go wrong? Great question. Hmm. He's giving it to me. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you explain it. Yeah, for what for whatever reason. The, the, and it relates to the last question a little bit. The, the nativist in influences in America and globally, it's not just here, it's in Hungary and Poland and other places as well, have become a much more significant factor. The truth of the matter is, is that immigration from Mexico is at low levels right now, historically low levels. Uh, part of it is because their economy is doing better. But if you go out into the world and tell people that, they often won't believe you that, in fact, that, that is often the case. Immigration is one of those hot-button issues that uh, plays very well with a certain portion of the base. Um, it, it started before, again, President Trump, and you, you got the facts right, because that base became alive back in 2012, 13, 14, 15. President Obama faced the same particular thing. But it's particularly alive and insidious now, you know, because our country was built on responsible immigration. And I'm not talking about totally open borders. We need it. Again, going back to agriculture, if it weren't for sensible immigration policies, we could not produce enough fruits and vegetables to go on your plate today. It would not happen. All right. There's just one area that I happen to know a little bit about how immigration is, is important for America. But my, like Mickey's, my parents, grandparents immigrated. Um, and it, 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 but but we, we uh, again, see this issue in terms of them evil, us good. And um, that, is just, that is just something that, again, is, is destructive. This problem can be solved, by the way. The, the business community, the agriculture community, the medical community, and lots of other places around the country want to solve it. It requires leadership. But when, I hate to again be overly partisan, but when you have a president, and I realize he wasn't president in 2014, okay, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. But when you have a president who talks the way he does. He says, well, some, they're rapists, they're murderers. Some of them may be good people, but it creates an environment where there's a, just a whole host of Americans who are, turn ugly on these issues. And uh, it requires leadership, better leadership from Congress and from the business community and the faith-based community. Faith-based communities sometimes get, doesn't get as engaged as they should be. And I'm not talking about the liberal faith-based community. I'm talking about the more conservative, evangelical faith-based community who need to be living up to their religious principles when they talk about these issues. So it's just a tough political nut to crack. But it, we got to deal with it. I, I think there are two parts here. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, my... my uh, Grandparents came over from Poland to Lithuania. Came came to Cleveland. And, and this is uh, Ohio is an immigrant state, uh, and and uh, all the various immigrant populations that who've made Ohio what it is. But the the other factor here is that there are a lot of other things that have happened in the country that caused people to uh, feel unsettled. 
uh, economic advancement has been uh, uneven. Parts of the country left behind. Upward social mobility has declined. Uh, the chances of, of feeling that your, your children are going to have the same kind of opportunities you have had uh, has declined. And, and so the nativist, I, and I agree, it's a good term, the, the nativist angers and all that come out that surface uh, are, are from, coming from a lot of very frustrated people, yeah. a lot of people who feel that the ground has, has been shifting under them and, and they don't feel you know, secure anymore. And so they start looking for scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of the problem. And, and so we have to make sure that we have policies in place so that the economic advancement is more widespread. It's not just on the coast, but it's in Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan. Can I say Ohio and Michigan in the same sentence? <laughs> but but it, it does require that kind of, of concentration on how we make sure this country is working for everybody. And I think, you know, that, that's the first step. I agree with Mickey about economic anxiety has helped to fuel this issue. Got a question. Next question. Okay. Um, this is going to be kind of aggressive uh, and challenging, but I want to precede it by saying I admire what you're doing, what you're trying to do, and uh, I'm not against civility. I, we could use more civility. But I'm skeptical. Uh, in the late 1850s, uh, a great American, uh, insufficiently celebrated today, William Henry Seward, gave a famous speech in which he expressed that uh, we were in a period of irrepressible conflict. And he personally continued to work to avert the Civil War, even after Fort Sumter, as Lincoln's Secretary of State. And the war came, as Lincoln said in his second inaugural. Um, uh, First part of the question, could the Civil War have been avoided had there been more civility? Uh, I don't think so, but uh, perhaps you'd like to convince me of that. Uh, In the present moment, which I find uncomfortably similar in the way it feels to the way I, it might have felt at that time with the, uh, this day in particular with one of our great institutions about to be uh, hijacked and taken over uh, by a point of view that is not reflective of the majority of Americans. Um, if uh, Democrats and liberals had been uh, more civil in the last few years, would this moment have been avoided? I don't think so, but perhaps you could convince me. May I, may I just respond before I give it up? I don't think civil civility means lack of dissent. And I think that's the clarifying thing. Civility does not mean lack of civ- dissent. And quite honestly, the Civil War could have been avoided had the South not tried to succeed. So, <laughs> I mean, so uh, your point is noted, but I do think that we could have had civil discourse on a very important issue of the time. And just like now, I do think that um, we have to remember that um, there are important things, as Dan said, to stand up for. It is the way in which you do that that we're talking about, not not doing it. So. We, get, uh, we actually have interviewed a fair number of political historians across the conservative liberal spectrum in response to how often we're asked, is this the most, is this different now, or haven't we had times like this in America many times before? And the answer across the board is the only other time that this level of incivility has happened between us as people was in fact 
post-Civil War Reconstruction Jim Crow era. So the fact that you were to say that this somehow feels to you like it might be somehow of the same character of that era, I think there's some data to suggest. And I would just underline what we said before in the way you framed your questions. No, civility would not have done that, but it's a misuse of what the role of civility is. We did an etymology study, the, the history of words, when we began this institute. And what we've understood is that in modern history, there's actually been a distortion of the meaning of civility to bring it closer to a sense of manners or a sense of courtesy. The actual root word is from France, from the French language. And what it means is the duty of a citizen which is a much deeper meaning and a much more reflective sense of what we all have to contribute to dealing with what is an extremely challenging time to American fundamental values and democratic institutions. I, I, you, you ask a very good question. I'm glad you did because it maybe brings us back down to earth. And I recall, I don't recall because I wasn't alive in 1912, but Mark Twain once said, <laughs> there's only one true criminal class in America and that's the Congress. <laughs> and he said that 104 years ago. So uh, a lot of these conflicts were there. And then I remember in 1964 uh, when Barry Goldwater made that famous speech. Some of you remember because he was accused of being an extremist because he'd voted against the Civil Rights Act of 64 and he was a little too uh, eager to perhaps talk about using nuclear weapons. And so he, and, and so he was called an extremist. He went to the floor of the Republican Convention and he said, and let me remind you that extremism is in the pursuit of liberty is no vice and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue, okay? And Lyndon Baines Johnson took that quote and destroyed Barry Goldwater, okay? Now today, you listen to that quote, extremism is the, in the pursuit of liberty is no vice? I think he's right. Mm -hmm. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue? You know, he's pretty right. Times change as, as things go, go on. And I don't think we're at the end of the world. And I, I just think it takes a combination of leadership and followership. And, and we can get our act together again. So as, as somebody who started politics in, in the Goldwater campaign, <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let me say, uh, you know, America was born in revolution. Uh, and there is nothing that is more patriotic than dissent, the ability to you know, stand up for your principles. That's what we've always done. It's a matter of whether you do it effectively or destructively, whether yeah. you do it in a way that helps you achieve the goal that you're trying to achieve by listening to and understanding what is motivating the other side, why they feel the way they do, so that you know what problems need to be addressed. So, and, and there are ways all, all, all civility is is a tool to help you improve things. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that need to be improved. That doesn't mean there are not things that you need to stand up very firmly for. But it's whether you do it in a way that helps you achieve your goal or just makes you feel better. And, uh, you know, so that, that's how, think of civility as a way to, when somebody's on the other side, what is the grievance that, that we can help address? You know, you can't address all of it. Some people are racist. You can't address that. You know, but other people are just simply feel like, like they've lost their place. And, and that can be addressed. And so that's the tool that we can uh, call on. And I would just add one more thing. 
a little self-deprecating humor would help make moderate people's intensity. And, you know, humor can break the ice like nothing else can. And if you look at the great American leaders of the past, and I'm thinking of true right now, FDR and Reagan, they were always able to break the ice and make people kind of come back down to earth again. And I'm not saying we should mandatorily teach comedy and humor in our public schools, mm -hmm. but recognizing that not everything is so serious that the end of the world depends on it. So it comes to mind another example of where we're seeing some hope. You know, and it started out because we were hearing from, again, literally thousands of Americans that their expectation was that the 2018 campaign would be even worse than the 2016 campaign. And I have to say, when I first heard this, I sort of said, well, how could that be? And then I stopped and <laughs> thought for a moment, well, yes, it may well be. But there's been a big demand from the public to say, what can be done about this? Is there anything we can do to actually, as citizens, as electeds, or as candidates, as journalists, do to impact the tone of 2018? And yes, probably on the mass scale, not much. But this is where we all need to start thinking about our own spheres of influence. And actually, the League in Ohio has collaborated with us to begin to bring county party chairs together, the Democrat chair and the Republican chair, and have a real conversation. What do you want to happen in your county relative to the tone, the language that's used, and the character assassination that has become characteristic of our elections? And no, it's not yet the majority of 88 counties in Ohio. But it is some number of county chairmen that are talking to their committee men and women who are among the most partisan citizens in the country to say, we ought to do this differently this time around. And we at the Institute have been asked by members of our national board, both former politicians, some current politicians on a brain trust, some journalists, to try and experiment. And we're doing it, which is running some workshops on how to run a positive campaign and win. We did the first one in June in Columbus, Ohio. We had a small, it was intended to be a beta, eight participants, but it was very diverse and representative. Four Democrats, three Republicans, one independent, one person running for the House of Representatives, one person running for governor, one person running for mayor, and four for state legislatures, and they came from six different states. They have all signed on to this and have agreed to recruit another round of people, which we'll do a second process with in August, in which we hope to get to 16 or 20. So find something that you can do in your own sphere of influence, like the students at the School of the Arts did in terms of bringing respect, civility, success into their classrooms. And, but take a stand and make something happen. I just want to say, because I mentioned to Lewis, Lewis Clerk for Justice Scalia, you got to go see this movie, RBG. Okay, all right. Because if you see it, you'll see that Scalia and Ginsburg disagreed a lot, not on everything, but they were the best of friends. And what brought them together was mutual respect and love of opera and humor. Okay? And it's a great example of what we could all be doing in our lives. 
Uh, today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum on restoring civility in public discourse featuring Mickey Edwards, former U.S. Congressman for Oklahoma, Dan Glickman, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and the Executive Director of the Congressional Program at the Aspen Institute, and Dr. Carolyn J. Lukensmeyer, Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona. Our moderator is Yvette McGee-Brown, partner in charge of diversity, inclusion, and advancement at Jones Day. Today's forum is the inaugural Chief Justice Thomas J. Moyer Lecture Series event created to provide a lasting memorial to Chief Justice Moyer's dedication to the administration of justice and public understanding of the law. We're honored to have Justice Moyer's wife, Mary, in the audience with us today. Thank you for being here. Today's forum is also the John W. Barclay Memorial Forum, made possible by a generous gift from his estate. We have guests representing Squire Patton Boggs, where Mr. Barclay worked with us today. Thank you for your continued support of City Club programming. Our community partner is the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your support and partnership. Lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Jones Day and the Chief Justice Thomas Moyer Legacy Committee. We thank you all for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Edwards, Mr. Glickman, and Ms. Lukensmeyer. Thank you, Ms. McGee-Brown for moderating. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, the forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.